Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for September 4th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. In his post yesterday on The Kitchen, Joe Esposito asked the question, what does a scientist want, and provided a few possible answers. But maybe what a scientist or other scholar really wants most today is what all of us want, just a little more time. To explore that a bit further, particularly with respect to how scholars interact with the literature, we're joined today by Carol Tenniper, Professor of Information Science and Research Director of the Center for Information and Communication Studies at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. For decades, Tenniper and her colleagues have studied how scholars read the literature, how much of it they read, how much time they spend with it, and how those patterns have and haven't changed in the era of networked online information. She's on the line with me now. Carol, thanks for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Well, over the years, uh, you know, you've looked extensively at how researchers and scholars actually use the literature, how they read the literature uh, from a wide uh, variety of perspectives. And one of the more widely cited and really striking findings, which I've you know seen echoed in some other studies, is that scholarly readers are now, uh, they, they say they're reading far more papers every year, but spending less time reading each. I think you reported uh, that the average number of papers read by university faculty had grown from 150 in 1977 to 280 in 2005, but that the time spent per paper had declined uh, from 48 minutes to 31 minutes uh, over the same period. Um, can you talk a bit more about that work and, and whether there's, you know, whether we've seen a continuation of that trend, if you have that information? Yeah, I, just one clarification that um, when Donald King, my, my collaborator, started this work in 1977, it was originally funded by National Science Foundation, and so it excluded humanities scholars. Mm. So th- we've continued. We, we now include humanities scholars in our broader work, but when we do the comparison, we take them out of that mm-hmm. uh, that comparison. So it would be, um, and we do international now, but but this is U.S. just to keep that steady. So the 1977 to the present, um, it would be social scientists, scientists, everybody except humanities, mm. scholars, and um, U.S. only. And we, we do have new data, so we're just at the point of writing it up. In 2011, we did reading surveys in the United Kingdom, and then in 2012, the U.S., so I've got the U.S. to compare, and then we're also now finishing up um, some surveys in Australia. So we'll be coming out with some kind of our 2011 to 13 data set uh, to compare to the 2004 through 6 data set. And um, we found some interesting things. So I've just looked at the data for the, uh, for the U.S. excluding humanities to compare, and it looks like this trend is beginning to slow down. Hmm. So the average in 2012 is about 268 readings per year, so slightly lower, just mm-hmm. just a little bit. But it does look like this, which was a non-sustainable trend, mm-hmm. by the way. You can't keep reading more and more in so less and less time. You yeah, you, you know, there's only so many hours, and you can't read shorter and shorter times. So, so um, not surprising. I expected that it might be, but this is the first dip in that upward trend that we have seen in 30-something years. So a slight, slight leveling, a little bit of a dip, 
And we've been looking at some of the reasons, and I think I have some pretty good guesses. Um, I don't know if you want to go into that yeah, now. Well, would or, you care to share some of those guesses with yeah, us? I'd be so, very interested. Some of the things are that I think, and not surprising to any academic or any scholar or researcher at all, is that there's so many other kinds of materials that are vying for attention. Mm-hmm. So we began looking in 2011 for the first time an amount of reading from other kinds of things besides articles and interaction with various types of social media. And I suspect that the total amount of time interacting with work-related information is greater, perhaps, than it was even. It's certainly equal to what it was in 2005, but I think that paying attention to some of these other kinds of sources like blogs, like videos, like all these other things that, that have good quality scholarly information, I think it's beginning to have an impact on reading of, of uh, more traditional sources like articles. That's, that's a speculation, but we've got the data now that shows that you know, the time spent on um, uh, readings of other types of material. So that may be why. Well, that's interesting. And of course, that is, is something that, you know, no matter what you do for a living is going to kind of resonate. Uh, you know, these, these other channels have started to just really make encroachments on, on what is a finite, you know, 24-hour day. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, in, you mentioned this, this pattern and people kind of tapping lots of different information sources. There are still the papers in the middle of this. And, you know, in light of this work and in light of what you're seeing, uh, you know, and how you're interpreting the data trends, what does it actually mean to read a paper uh, today? Yeah, it, it's interesting. We, we have defined it reading. In in all of our surveys, we have to define reading. We have to define article, too, by the way, which has gotten a lot more complicated Mm. now than it was in 1977, because an article could be anything that's a scholarly container, whether it's in a journal or not. Mm -hmm. And reading is the same thing. We, We define reading as going beyond the table of contents and or abstract into the body of the article. So um, we then have to ask follow-up questions to know what depth they went, because you could read one word or you can read the whole thing. So we ask, with what care did you read um, the article? We, um, by the way, use a technique in our surveys called critical incident technique that's used in a lot of other things. But critical incident allows us to first ask questions about overall amount of reading. How much reading did you do of various kinds in the last month? And then we extrapolate that up to a year. But then next is we ask people to focus on the last article, in this case, reading they Mm -hmm. did so that we can get into real depth of how they found it, how much time they Mm -hmm. spent. And so we have a second stage sample of readings, not just readers, but readings. So all of the readings done by this group of readers. So by doing that, then we can ask them questions about for this last reading, you know, what, how much time did you spend on Mm -hmm. it? And with what depth did you read it? Mm, What did you actually do in that article? That's right. And so some folks who have heard us make presentations have said, well, if they're just reading a paragraph, that's not reading a paper. And we say, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. You're getting information from that. So going beyond the abstract. And so we asked, did you read it? We have a five-point scale from just skimmed to um, read the entire article with great care. 
only about, actually less than a third of the readings, the total readings that, that uh, people tell us about, are read the whole article with great care. Mm-hmm. About another little less than a third are read attention to the main, with care to the main points. So it's really, there's an awful lot of either skimming or, or actually just reading, just going to the methods or just going to a particular part that's of interest or trying to pay attention to the main points. So the reading from beginning to end of everything is not as common as other kinds of behavior. So reading a paper today has a lot of different uh, definitions. And part of it has to do with purpose of reading. If I'm reading something that I'm writing an article about that and this is a key reading, mm-hmm. then I might read it with more care. If I'm reading just for current awareness, just trying to keep up in my field, uh, much more likely to be just skimming or looking at some of the main points. Yeah. So we pay attention to that. Well, it is, it is interesting because in some sense that's... Uh... I suppose always been true of the scholarly literature, uh, both before and after the internet era. But you, if you put the two sort of things together, we now have this kind of picture of scholarly readers as kind of overwhelmed with information, needing to find some way to just sort of stay ahead of the game. Um, I've even heard that that view expressed in industry meetings with with this sort of quip that finding content is easy, but reading is hard. And uh, for publishers in particular, it seems like providing support for that kind of more skimming function, especially in an online context, is a real, you know, potential way to add value and save people time. Are you, what are you seeing people doing or publishers doing or what should they do to address this kind of, this kind of need? And, and it is absolutely crucial. You've got to help people get through and find the best. So the first thing I'd say is that these kind of quality clues are essential. There's lots of different quality clues. We've done a lot of work on that, too. But something that lets people know that of all of these choices, which are the ones that I should read, what are the most important, or what are the ones that I know that will will be relevant. And there's lots of ways to do that. Even if an article is divorced from a, a journal, a collection journal, journal brand name still is a quality clue. And so that still becomes a really important clue that this came from a highly regarded journal, therefore I'm going to read it. Other kinds of quality clues include recognized authors in the field. But publishers really need to think of ways beyond that because there still is too much. And Or maybe a non-subject expert that's reading it. More cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary research, people are not so familiar with the main journals or authors in their field. So how do you help those people? So certainly things that help someone get to the important content quickly. So abstracts are still really important. I remember years ago, probably maybe 20 years ago, we were saying, well, abstracts are going to be obsolete because we can get to the text easily. We can get to structured text. Mm -hmm. We don't need. But it turns out that in interviews and focus groups, people still mention all the time how important abstracts are. And some reading studies show people look at them. So abstracts, still important. Um, Structured things that publishers are doing that are really important is navigable structure so people can go straight to the um, citation, straight to the methods, Mm -hmm. being able to get to the important part, straight to the figures or tables if that's all somebody wants. Mm -hmm. And that's not only structure, but that's also behind-the-scenes 
indexing and markup of those particular parts so people can can find the part they want. So kind of deconstructing uh, the article. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you want the whole article. Sometimes you only want the piece. And being able to go back and forth, I think, is is really important. And, of course, publishers are, are have been working on that and, and, and offer those kinds of things. I think that's absolutely essential to help readers uh, get to what they need when they need it. And then exposing the best, um, giving some other kinds of clues to the best. And I, a lot of folks are working on that. There's not an accepted necessarily yet way to do that, but revealing the things um, that have been cited most, like Google Scholar does. The problem with that, of course, is it, it is biased toward the older materials, mm-hmm. the things that have been around. So there's a, there is, by the way, a big increase in reading of older materials, mm-hmm. and I think that's the reason because they're on the first page. Mm-hmm. But it, something that shows this has been cited most over time or this has been cited most in the last year or these are the things, maybe quality rankings mm-hmm. that um, readers can add. Um, there, there have been experiments with that, you know, kind of the, five-star, sort of four-star. There needs to be a way to get some feedback um, on articles. You know, uh, anything can be gamed. Mm-hmm. We, know, we know that, but there, but those kinds of clues are really important to know if I've got a thousand things, what are the things that I need to spend my time on? So some of them are traditional, some of them are structural, but some of them are metrics that can be easily seen at the article level that say this is one that you ought to pay attention to. And all of this, of course, uh, boils down to the sort of prime directive of saving readers' time. Uh, we talked uh, earlier about the fact that your recent research seems to be showing that the growth in the number of papers uh, read by researchers each year, uh, which is a pattern you've seen for decades, seems to be leveling off. What about the uh, the time spent per paper, which you've also tracked and which seems to have been shrinking over the same period? Is that still going down? Even though the number of readings on average does seem to have gone down now with our latest study, the time spent per reading has not uh, has not decreased. We found that it's it's gone kind of flat. So there has been a continual decrease from seventy seven to two thousand and five in the amount of time spent per on average per reading from forty eight minutes down to about thirty one minutes. And in 2012, in the U.S., we found that it's still at about 31. So that's plateaued while the average amount of readings has decreased. Well, that's interesting because it's almost like there's only so little uh, an amount of time you can spend. (laughs) True. I I hope that's true, but, you know, that may not be true because we may be uh, – what what publishers have to do is to help people spend less time, Mm -hmm. either through structure or through um, tools – that allow machine reading and machine discovery and text text mining. Well, you also mentioned article-level metrics uh, a moment ago as a filter. These are things that include uh, online usage statistics, but also things like social media pickups, etc. I'm just curious. These are getting a lot of attention, and you just cited them now. But it also seems like your work here is suggesting that among readers, the journal brand uh, still carries a lot of weight uh, in addition to these things at the article level. Do you think that's changing? Well, we've done two studies in the last few years that looked specifically at that. And, um, and journal brand name 
comes up over and over again. It came up three years ago when we did a study, and and it came up in the study we're in the middle of right now. That that is the main clue that's understood. It's understood by the academic. It's also understood by the institution. So you know, it's something that's inculcated as as a writer, as an author. They understand they're supposed to publish in the top quality journals and they they understand this kind of pecking order put my best stuff in the best journals and that does carry over into reader behavior as well to a lesser degree than author behavior mm-hmm. my motivation as an author is a little different than my motivation as a reader but it still is comes out as a, a major clue so um study that we did um several years ago that that came out really high although um, one of the highest uh, factors was free to me. How do I make a choice as a reader? It's got, I don't want to have to pay for it. So as long as it's subsidized by my library or free to me, open access, that's, that's kind of the overwhelming thing. But the next thing that's most important in deciding what to read is the journal brand name. Still important. Well, I'd like to turn to some work you're currently doing uh, under a grant from the Sloan Foundation on the issue of trustworthiness. Um, the notion of how users establish uh, trustworthiness and authority of content, uh, especially online, is a huge thing for scholarly publishing in particular. Um, this is arguably sort of a significant value that publishers can bring to the table, whatever their uh, business model. Your research, if I understand it, is making an attempt to determine how users kind of navigate these issues of trust in this very fragmented and and overwhelming information environment that we're in. Uh, I know the work is still ongoing, but is there any, you know, can you tell us a bit more about it and and, and any of the things you're seeing in this work? Yes, and and it's something, because it's so multidimensional, we've we've got it down in phases. So we're in phase one now, funded by Sloan Foundation, which is looking at, at U.S. and U.K., just academics, and it's looking at trust and trustworthiness and quality judging from the perspective of reader cider what i what how do i decide what i'm going to cite mm-hmm. and and author disseminator how do i decide where to place my article uh, once it's written so uh, it's it's that whole uh, picture of an academic from from the viewpoint of of reading citing and and authoring, and again, those can be very different kind of, of judgments. Mm-hmm. So, what was interesting in the alt alt metrics in focus groups and in in depth interviews, as well as surveys, when we bring up the term alt metrics, most of the folks have no idea what that is. Mm-hmm. It's not a term that they use. But when we push a little bit, some some of those actually surface. When we ask, well, how do you decide if something is good? Well, journal name still comes out, but then they say, well, something that other people have read or that is recommended by a blogger I trust. Mm-hmm. So author name of a blog and their recommendation becomes a second order mm-hmm. of of recommendation. And then they also say connectedness. We've had, we had several who said connectedness. If I know that other people are reading it, and I know that it, it comes from a source that, that others are recommending, therefore I trust it. It must be high quality. And that's a kind of altmetric, even though they don't use the term. Mm-hmm. This idea of seeing that it's part of this larger sphere, that others are trusting it, and people I trust trust it, right. 
therefore that imbues some trust on the source. Does it does it have to be though that it's a it it's their own network of trust? In other words, it's it's is it enough to just see that lots of people have retweeted this but or, or does it have to be something that a lot of their their friends for example have retweeted? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, most people would kind of pull back and say, well, I'm not sure. We got a lot of I don't know, or I'm not sure, or I'm suspicious, or, you know, and so when you're suspicious or not sure if there is someone in your network, then that becomes the reassurance. Hmm. So we're kind of in a transition phase where popularity is is one thing, but if it's not, if it doesn't have something else like popularity of a journal article, and I recognize the journal name, that helps me choose from among those hundred. Mm-hmm. But popularity of something that doesn't have a journal name clue on it, how do I decide that? Well, if my circle says it's good, mm-hmm. then then it's okay. But if the world says it's good, it depends on who the world is. <laughs> yeah, so... So people are still kind of suspicious. Now, when it comes to my role as an author, if I'm deciding where to put something, then I'm a lot more conservative. Mm. Um, Academics are in the institutional, you know, trying to get tenure, trying to get promoted. Then it becomes things like impact factors start popping up Mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. So a lot more, uh, and, and true with citation, a lot more conservative than reading. Uh, people are opening up more a bit when it comes to uh, trust in reading, mm-hmm. not so much when it comes to trust in where I place my things. And a lot of the young scholars who are in a tenure-track position are even more conservative than, than older. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? I've seen that in other, uh, in other uh, contexts as well. They're, uh, you, you, you have this sort of impression that young people are going to be really pushing the envelope, but, but, it, but it, in some contexts, they're very careful. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we look at averages here. So if I'm saying, on average, the younger scholar, um, the, it has to be more conservative because they're trying to build their reputation, trying to build their career. But if I look at the outliers, if I look at the whole range of behavior and I look at the people who are the segment, you know, the, the 5% or the real heavy social media users, they do tend to be younger. And if I look at the segment the 5% that are absolutely conservative, not conservative, but don't use right. social media and don't create a lot. They can't have any place for it. Right. They tend to be older. So yeah. there is an age effect on the extremes of the behavior. But on average, the, the, the uh, younger academics do tend to be more conservative as authors, not necessarily as readers, though. Well, I want to close by just going back to the value of scholarly publishing and how that value proposition is changing in light of a lot of the things that you're talking uh, about. I think in in a paper in Learned Publishing from 2011 that I think actually you alluded to uh, earlier, um, you and your co-authors closed that paper by writing, and I'm just going to quote it, um, in the future, the combination of the unwillingness of readers to pay out of their own pockets for articles, the willingness to read from non-journal peer-reviewed sources, and the growing availability of alternatives provides a warning for publishers. If publishers are to remain relevant to readers in the future, value needs to be uh, provided beyond access to content. Um, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but where do you see that value coming from? And we have touched on some of it. One is the quality. People really need to be be assured that they're going to get quality. So the quality 
imbued by a brand name becomes even more important. But there has to be uh, there has to be an assurance of quality behind that. So that leads to continued quality in editing, in formatting, in peer reviewing, in selection, and all of those kinds of things are continue to be to be important to both readers and, and authors. But beyond that, these kinds of clues, clues to quality beyond the brand name, because I may have more in that than I, than I can deal with. So metrics become important, even though we're at this stage where, where readers are not quite sure what they mean. I think they're beginning to see connectiveness. Um, this one's been read a lot. This one's important in my field, in my domain. So those kinds of article-level metrics are, are um, really important and, and a part of that value that I can provide this to you. I think aids to analysis software, we, we can't read everything we need to do, and, and data mining and text mining are becoming important, so good kinds of software aids, good kinds of, of text structured so I can do good, uh, good analysis on this. This is going to become um, more and more important in every field. This is not just sciences and social science, of mm-hmm. course, humanities. This has become huge. So good software tools and providing access to the whole text and, and large uh, large. Uh, corpuses of text are, are really important to, and I think are going to become more and more important. So help, in, in a sense, that's helping reading. That's deep reading mm-hmm. or machine-aided reading or, you know, it's not just strategic text mining. Strategic reading, I've heard it. Yeah, strategic reading is another good one. So those kinds of, of aids, I think, are important, too. Carol Tenniper, thanks very much. I was glad to do it. Thank you for dropping into the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for September 4th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.